Amen. The key statement in this chapter is found in verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. It is a key statement in the chapter, and it leads us into the theme of the whole book. The logic of the language tells us that John, when he wrote this book, had something specific in mind, and it was to lead his readers to enjoy an amazing personal fellowship with the Father and the Son. And I want you to read with me verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that. And it has the significance of purpose in order that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are inclined to use the word fellowship very loosely. You may have had fellowship today at lunchtime. You may have had fellowship meeting someone at a coffee shop. You may have had fellowship in a phone call or over the fence to a neighbor. It was a hearty chat, and you would refer to that as fellowship. Sometimes in church we talk about, don't run away after the service. Let's enjoy the fellowship. But this word means an awful lot more. It's not even imitation. It's participation. And it even means more than that. It means partnership. Something similar to a boss saying to an employee, I'm going to make you a partner in the business. That means you're going to enter into not just the rewards, but the work. You're going to share in everything. Or like the partnership of marriage, It's more than casual. It is a commitment, and it is an enjoyment of everything that your spouse is or will ever be. Fellowship with Christ is not just to serve Him, but it is to be united to Him as a joint heir. A joint heir. That's biblical language, Romans 8 to be in partnership with Him. And as I said, Christians are not just called to be imitators, followers of the Lord Jesus, walking in His footsteps. That we do and desire. But our status is union, and thereby sweet communion with our Lord Jesus. Now, all of this, of course, is the miracle of the new birth we be born of God. And John made that a fundamental matter in this letter. If you're going to enter into this union, this partnership with the Lord, you must be born 
of God. Six times in this letter, you will find that reference, born of God. Now, that has to mean something. It's not just lingo. It is a term expressing reality. And I hope tonight that I'm preaching to everyone here tonight and that you are born of God. The other way John keeps up this miracle of partnership is in the term to know God. And when you read through the book, you will find this comes up again and again. Now, when he's talking about knowing God, he's talking about heart experience. It is to know Him in heart. Now, you really need to do your Bible homework to get the fullness of this. And I'll challenge you to it. I'm sure you know how to use a concordance or a computer concordance. And when you read through 1 John, look up whether it is the word no, gnosko. That's the Greek term behind it. That means to know in heart. There's another term John uses in this book, and it is ido. And that means to know by observation. You could be looking through the window, and you could see other Christians, but you couldn't really call that fellowship. You couldn't call that partnership, just looking on. And here John, as he writes through this book consistently in these five chapters, he's writing to people, and he says, you know God. You know Him in heart. And so, how are we brought into this fellowship? The word, by the way, is koinonia. We free Presbyterians balk a little bit at the term because it has been hijacked by the ecumenical movement. And I know in various parts of the world they have this koinonia fellowship, and it embraces all various religions under the umbrella of Christianity. But it is a powerful word. And it speaks of our partnership. Now, as we go through this book, and I say this is the theme for the whole book, chapter 1 answers, how come? How is this possible? And we're going to deal with that tonight. But chapter 2 is what happens when you're born of God. Chapter 3, by whom? John starts out in chapter 3 saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It comes from the Father. We are born of God. And that's the theme of chapter 3. Chapter 4 is who cares. There are false prophets in the world. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny that he's come in the flesh. They deny that he's the Son of God. Who cares? And there are ten subpoints in that one proving who cares. Then chapter 5 is whosoever believeth. That's who is born of God. And he that overcometh the world is he that believeth on the Son of God. Chapter 5 is the chapter of faith. 
that enables us to overcome the world. Tonight, we're going to limit ourselves to one chapter. Uh, isn't that very gracious of me? Keep us a little bit shorter and keep to one chapter for tonight. How can this possibly happen? That little me, a nobody, a sinner who has cursed God, who has sinned against every one of his commandments, who's broken his law, who is guilty from head to toe, that I should possibly become a partner with the Lord of glory. Well, as we look at this chapter, we get the answer. There is a revelation of God's Son. And you'll see that in the opening verses, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the Word of life. And these first three verses really get into the nature of the Lord Jesus. And this is fundamental Christianity. The only way to have a part in the gospel is to have a revelation of God's Son. Now, John was an eyewitness of the living Lord Jesus. He saw him. And so he could say, that which we was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Now, did you notice that it's plural language? Our eyes. This is not just John's take or self-assessment. It is the apostolic message. Every one of the apostles saw the living Lord Jesus. That is the credential of an apostle, an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. John was there. He heard the Lord minister for three years after leaving the boats and the nets. He heard the ministry of Christ. He sat at his feet and learned his word. And there John testified of the Lord's eternal nature, that which was from the beginning. And he builds on his gospel statement, Jesus always existed with the Father, that which was from the beginning. And so he builds the revelation of the Lord Jesus to his readers. John testified of the Lord's physical nature with a human body. He lay on Jesus' breast. He didn't have to do what Thomas needed to do, touch him, uh, his pierced hands and feet. John knew the human nature of the Lord Jesus. Now, that comes up very important in this book because John was living in the second half of the first century. He was ministering after Paul the Apostle was gone. Peter was gone. All the other apostles were dying off one way or another, many of them martyred and persecuted. John lived on for at least 30 years 
even beyond the fall of Jerusalem. John became the contender for the deity and the unipersonality of the Lord Jesus, that he was God and man. And those were the days of the Gnostics sowing their seeds of heresies. And in those early times, there was this swaying of the pendulum. Some were advocating Jesus that he was all God, and some saying that he was only man. But the truth is in the middle. He is both God and man. And that was the message of John. And it is the unipersonality, the godhood, the manhood of the Lord Jesus, united in one Christ, that makes him the perfect redeemer of his people. And it's made possible for a sinner to be united to the heart of God, reconciled from their guilt and sin into the very loving grace of our heavenly Father, because Jesus is the perfect mediator and Savior of His people. And this is the way into fellowship, believing on the deity, the divinity, the manhood, the unique person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I like to use that full title, He's the Lord. He's the Lord of glory and Lord of lords. He is Jesus. He was born of Mary, the Savior of sinners. I shall call His name Jesus. And He's Christ. He's the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior of His people. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you, this is the message, that our fellowship, our partnership, our union is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, in this chapter, there's another revelation, and it is in verse 5, that God is light. We call it a revelation because it's not man prying into God's nature. It's not our human research. It's not merely from apostolic authority, but it's the apostles relaying the message of God. Now, I noted that in verse 5. This is very important. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him. We being the apostles. We heard this. This is what brought us into fellowship with God. This is what made us to be participants in the gospel. The message revealed by God, which we heard of him, and declare unto you. So, John was just the message boy. John wasn't making this up. John was not 
concocting or designing this doctrine. He was conveying and proclaiming, writing to his readers, what he heard and others heard. And he was declaring it unto them that God is light. Now, why is this so significant? You would imagine that if this is true, that God is, dwells in exquisite light, that that would be a bar for us to fellowship with Him. Well, let's establish this nature of light firstly. In James 1.17, there is a little window of truth here. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That variableness, no variableness, is an astronomer's term, paralege. If you were standing at the equator at noon, there would be no shadow. You have the sun directly above your head. And if you draw a line straight down to earth, there's no shadow. And James is saying, God is the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness. There's no shadow. There's not even a hint of darkness. He is pure light. He is holy. In this language of John, light equals holy, purity, righteousness. And the God we worship is perfect light. We are linked up to Him by our new birth. His life is in us, and His holy nature now dwells in every born-again believer. Now, for that to work, one thing must happen. And John says it at the end of verse 5. In Him is light, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So, if we're just a casual, free-loader, oh, I don't mind loving the world tomorrow, let's worship God today and just walk with the world tomorrow. We lie. We do not know God in heart. We do not consider God as perfect light, holiness, and purity. We must walk in the light. God is not going to change His nature, but we must be changed into His. And every born-again believer wants to be changed 
That's the mark of the new birth. We're not even satisfied with our standard of godliness. We are striving for greater godliness. We want to be conformed more and more into His beautiful image. There is no other way to have fellowship with God. And if you get on your knees and pray and say, Lord, I want fellowship with Thee, you must recognize that God is light in whom is no darkness at all, and He is not changing. You must. And you cry to God to be changed, made into a new creature where all things pass away and all things become new. Now, verse 6 becomes then a warning to us. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If it's mere lip service and we say, oh yes, I walk with God, oh yes, I believe that He is in the light, but we are not walking in the light and using the light to live more and more unto God. To say so, to profess so, is an aggravation of a sinful condition. It is merely to grieve God, to say that you walk with God, and yet you're not walking in the light. Now, we're not making that judgment. God does. God has stated that He is light, and that must be the basis of our fellowship with Him. And the logic then is that all who walk in lies, in disobedience, in worldliness, in rebellion to God's light, or are covering up their lifestyle, are false. This is a tremendous warning. The true Christian will want the full exposure of the light. It's like when you come to spring cleaning. And if you're a homemaker and you want your house really clean and you don't believe in sweeping stuff under the carpet, you'll take the carpet out into the light. And the more light you can shine on those carpets, the better, because it shows up the dirt and it shows you what needs to be done. You really want your house to be clean you will want the light. It's the same with a person who wants to have fellowship with God, partnership with God, brought into the family of God, to be on praying terms with God, to have a testimony of living for God's glory in the power of the gospel. You will pray for light to come into your soul and to show up everything that would grieve the heart of God. Now, verse 8 becomes the application of this truth. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
The person who says that has no fellowship with God. If we deny that we are sinners, if we deny that we fall short of God's holy standard, if we deny that the light exposes our sinful nature, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, the Proverbs has put it very, very clearly. It says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That becomes the grounds of our fellowship, our partnership. That's how we become a child of God. That's how we walk with God in the light, confessing, not covering up, but forsaking them and seeking God's mercy. And so the Christian life is one of confessing sin daily, constantly, and we do this when we pray. And Jesus taught his disciples in what we now call the Lord's Prayer. He taught them to pray daily that they would be forgiven their trespasses as they forgive others. That's the, the attitude of the born-again Christian. That's the mindset of one who recognizes God is so perfectly holy, and I desire to walk with Him in the light. I'm ready to confess my own sinfulness and my own need of fellowship with God. And so the old preachers exhorted people to keep short accounts with God. You want to be in His fellowship and of His blessing, you don't let a week go by without praying and pleading against the sinful, the plague of sin in your own heart. But you come frequently. And when those things arise that you know grieve God, when that occasion comes when maybe you have offended a brother or a sister or troubled, uh, whatever the occasion is, and you recognize the, the wrongness of it, or maybe a, a word has come out that has not been intended, but you have grieved the Spirit of God, then you pray, Lord, shine the light. And I confess my sin. I forsake them and pray for deliverance. That brings us to another revelation in chapter 1. We've had the revelation of the Son, the revelation that God is light, but then we have the revelation of the blood that cleanseth us from all sin. Now, I call it a revelation because there's no unconverted person who comprehends the miracle of Calvary. And it's only when that cross is revealed to us through the Word, through preaching by the Holy Ghost, and our eyes are opened to the power and victory of our Lord Jesus upon that cross, and it comes to our hearts as a revelation. It's an eye-opener. 
and we begin to comprehend that our Lord Jesus went to the cross that he might purchase our fellowship, our partnership with the Father. Now we come to this revelation in verse 7. But, oh, I love that but. It turns the whole tables around. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. That's a warning. But, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, the revelation is the ongoing cleansing, cleanseth us. The believer in Christ has taken him as Savior in all the fullness and all the power of his redemption. And our past sins are covered, our present sins are covered, our future sins are all covered by the one sacrifice, the atoning death of our Lord Jesus. And we are given fellowship with God, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth. It keeps on cleansing us and cleansing us. And that's how we can have fellowship with a holy God. That's how we can get on our knees and pray with boldness, with acceptance, with assurance that these are our blessings to enter into wonderful communion with the living God. I hope you've been to the Niagara Falls. Uh, until Buell and I went to live on that side of the country, we had been a couple of times. And in two years, I've been there once. I took a student minister there, Jonathan Eccles. He stayed with us a few days, and I said, well, you can't go back to Northern Ireland without seeing the Niagara Falls. So we took a day and went down there, and we stood watching that torrent of water pouring over from the Americans into the Canadian. So, but the only thing the Americans give away for free, their water at the Niagara Falls. And that water just topples over the edge, hurdles down, and then that dashes upon the rocks and upsprays the mist. And you've seen the, well, they look little boats from the upper tier, and they, with their uh, coats and mats, they sail up against the current. They go under the spray as far as the boat can take them in the rapids of the, of the Niagara. But there is something of an illustration of the ongoing cleansing power of the blood of the Lamb. And it never stops. 
the blood atonement of our Lord Jesus was an infinite offering. And for thousands of years now, sinners have turned to the blood of Jesus, pleading His cleansing. And so can you. Did you know that the Niagara Falls actually did stop one year? It was 1848, and there was a nice jam. The wind was blowing from the Erie Peninsula, the Erie uh, Lake, and somehow, it's beyond my imagination, there was a buildup of ice, and the water stopped flowing. And so we can't say that the Niagara will never feel. But I want to assure you of this, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin at all times. And this is the how of blessed partnership, communion with a holy God. The continual cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And God backs this up with a promise. He says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't get any better than that. So you have a statement here, this revelation that we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us, keeps on cleansing us. And then the promise is personal if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the revelation of the power of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. There is then such peace and such confidence that we have this partnership with God. And John said, we want you to have this joy. Back in verse 3, he said uh, that and truly our fellowship, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye may have fellowship with us. He wanted his readers to enjoy what he and others were enjoying. And that's the, that's the, the vision of every Christian. I want my family to have this. I want my neighbors to have this. I want my brothers and sisters in the Lord's church to have this joy. I don't want them to be defeated by sin. I don't want them to feel that they're guilt-laden, that they're burdened by all the, the shortcomings of their walk in this world. If only we acknowledge that we fall short. If only we acknowledge that we are sinful. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. And that we can say tonight, we can say 20 years from now, we can say at our deathbed,
and it'll be set in glory, washed in the blood of the Lamb continually. This is how. That's the how of partnership, fellowship with God. And the rest of this book, 1 John, really goes on to expound that more and more. It's a thrilling book. It'll do your heart good. And I trust the Lord might help us even to preach some more of it in the weeks to come. May the Lord bless you tonight through His Word. And if you are burdened by sin, if you for some reason have lost out with God, if, if we confess, He is faithful. God will not fail you. He'll cleanse you. He'll restore you. And He'll give you the joy. Hallelujah for gospel joy. Let's close our meeting tonight with hymn 524. 524. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. 524.
Our gracious God, we thank Thee for this Lord's Day You have given us. We thank Thee for fellowship with brothers and sisters, but we thank Thee also that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. We thank Thee for the joy of this, and what a thrill to be in communion with the living God. And Lord, we recognize Thee as holy and sinless, we recognize that Thou art a God who even stoops to look into the earth. But, O oh Lord, we thank Thee that You have lifted us out of the pit of sin, washed us in the blood, and that You keep on washing us until that day when we see Thee and are changed into Your glorious likeness. We pray Your blessing upon each one here this evening. May that joy that John desired for his readers truly fill every heart this evening. May there be singing on the way home. May there be rejoicing that this is our God and our salvation in Christ. May there be victory for us in the week to come. And we pray that you will abide with us until we meet again. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.